concluding our series um, called Reality. This is the last sermon in it. Next week is kind of a bridge in between this series and the next series. We're going to start looking at the Psalms next week. and We'll spend about six, seven weeks in the Psalms. But today we're looking at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and the title is, You're a Runner for the Glory of God. And so I'm going to, we're just going to start by reading God's Word today. And one of the things we do here is we stand for the reading of God's Word because we believe it is a book like no other book. We believe it's inspired by God, therefore we stand to honor um, God's Word. And so uh, we're actually going to start in chapter 9, verse 24, so I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and stand with me. And it is a little bit of a long passage, 9.24 to all the way till 10.13. If you get tired, feel free to sit. It's not a marathon, so I don't want anyone getting too tired as we stand. But chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, but they drank, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place in examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down and eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Our Father, I I pray, I ask, that as we now look at your word, And I pray that we see the truth of your word. I pray that we delight in it. And God, it is a hard word though this morning. And I I pray that your spirit, I pray that it does break our hearts. I pray that God, as you reveal areas that we need to repent, that we need to turn from, that God, you also provide great comfort and love for us, showing That God, you supply all the grace that we need through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that, God, that we would be a church running the race. The race that you have set before us. The race that is for your glory. God, help us to be very aware of the temptations that are around us today. Help us to be aware that, God, your comfort, your strength, your grace is, 
is given to us that we might run the race and overcome temptations. God, I pray, be with us this morning. God, as we glorify you through your word, in your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. The outline has slightly um, changed this morning. Uh, So all of number two, we're not going to do that's in your outline. Um, We'll cover it pretty much, but we're not going to go through it in outline form. Last night as I was looking, I was going, we have communion today and everything. I was like, we got to rearrange some stuff so we can get out before before noon. So uh, so we're not going to do number two, but everything else should should fairly be close to this. Um, as we look at this text, Paul is giving a really strong warning for the Corinthians to look at who they are. Do they really love Jesus? Are they devoted to God and his glory? Have they received the gospel? See, all through chapter 9, Paul talks about how everything he does is shaped by the gospel. The gospel has transformed Paul. Now he lives an incredibly different life because of the gospel, because of the grace that he has received in Jesus Christ. And at the end of chapter 9, which we read, he begins using athletic imagery to communicate what the Christian life looks like. He compares the Christian life to a marathon. And that as a believer, we are to run so that we receive an imperishable wreath. We are to box purposefully. We don't just box around at the air, but we are to be purposely. We are to be focused. We are to be single-minded, meaning everything our bodies do is for the glory of God. Paul says he disciplines his body. He beats his body like an Olympic athlete does his, so he can run as hard as he can. So just, just as we look at that, and as we begin to move into chapter 10, I just want to ask, is that how you would describe your Christian life? Your Christian walk is everything you do shaped and informed by the gospel. Does the gospel shape how you work? Does it inform how you work? How you interact with your neighbors? How you parent? How you spend your free time? Do you beat your bodies for the sake of the gospel? What I mean by that is do you study God's word so you grow more in love and in knowledge of God? Do you live out God's word by loving and serving others and giving others the gospel that they too might be saved? Do you give up certain rights that you have in order to be a more effective missionary? The reality today is that churches are filled with unbelievers who think that they are believers. It is a reality. It's it's, Very true in American society. There are many people who gather with the church, but they do not truly have faith in Jesus Christ. They're not running for the glory of God. When I say glory of God, I mean to make God known, to display His love and His greatness in our actions and our words. And because of this high percentage of unbelievers within the church, the church often gives a very diluted message of what it means to live a Christian life. There are many professing believers who say they have come to know Christ, but their lives look exactly the same as they did before they came to know Christ. There's been no transformation. There is no change. So I, this is a hard message this morning. And I, I don't, my purpose is not to cause discouragement to you. 
I don't necessarily want you to doubt your salvation, but this is the situation that Paul's addressing. It is very relevant for us today. Paul says at the end of chapter 9, one of the reasons he runs for the glory of God is so that he will not be disqualified. Let me be clear, Paul is not running so that he will be qualified, but rather he's running so so hard because he is saved. It's because of the grace of God that he has received, that has transformed him, that's made him new, that is causing him to run so hard. He's been transformed by God's grace, and he now runs for God's glory. And one of the results of running for the glory of God is confidence in our salvation. It's confidence that we can look and say, I'm running because I know that God has transformed me. I'm not running to earn salvation, but I'm running because of my salvation. So as we go through the text, I want you to ask yourself, am I running for the glory of God? Just just. Look at yourself today. Don't think about your neighbor, your wife, your kids. So easy to say, yeah, man, they need this. Oh, wow, if they ran better like this, this would be good. But think about yourself and where you are today. Where are you at in struggling temptation? Where are you at in running for the glory of God? Are you running for the glory of God? Do you truly know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because Paul is going to go into chapter 10, and he's going to now be going into the Old Testament to make his point. And it's an amazing point. It's one that I think oftentimes we, we kind of pass over because if you're like me, sometimes we haven't thought deep enough about God's Word and really said, wow, what does this really mean? So as we begin this section in chapter 10, I want to point out verses 6 and 11 quickly. Verse 6 says, Now these things, the Old Testament, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 11, Paul is going to say that not only did the Old Testament events happen, but they were for our example and our instruction. But one reason we have the Old Testament and we see the events of the Old Testament recorded so we would know how to live godly lives and avoid sin. I hope you know that. That's one reason we have the Old Testament. I don't like Bibles that only give the New Testament. It's not really a Bible. It's like half of God's Word. I love Bibles that have the full Testament, old and new. And the Old Testament is an amazing gift of grace from God that, that we would know how to run the race. So I want to encourage you, as you read God's Word, don't only read the New Testament. New Testament is amazing. Love the New Testament. There's so much great beauty and truth and wonder in the Old Testament. We must read the Old Testament so we get, live godly lives and avoid sin. That's one of the purposes that we have the Old Testament. Now in verses 1-12, through 12, Paul is going to give this strong warning. It's coming off right off of chapter 9, where he's talking about how he disciplines his body, how he lives for the glory of God. When we looked at all of chapter 9, we would see that Paul, um, just how he describes the fact that his life is transformed by the gospel. And now he's going to turn, he's going to apply this to the church. He's going to give a very strong warning about temptation and about thinking that you're saved when you're not really saved. And so here's the warning. All of Israel experienced God's grace, but not all of Israel had faith in God. Okay, so all of Israel experienced God's grace, but not all of Israel had faith in God. And you'll see what I mean as we go through here. So in verses 1 through 5, Paul is going to give four acts of grace. There's actually five, but I combined two of them to make four. Um, and, And notice the word all in verses 1 through 5. 
All passed through the sea. All were baptized. Um, all under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. Paul's emphasizing all. Corporateness of Israel. All of Israel experienced these graces. So what did they experience? They were all under the cloud. Passed through the sea. Were baptized into Moses. And ate spiritual food and drank spiritual water. Paul's referring to the fact that God brought Israel out of Egypt. He's looking back at this amazing salvific event in the Old Testament. And the cloud, that's how God led them. Remember, it was a cloud by day. It represented the presence of God where the cloud went, the people went. They went through the sea. The sea was the fact that God parted the Red Sea so that Israel could safely escape the Egyptians. And then, of course, the sea came crashing back down on the Egyptian army, destroying them. They were baptized into Moses, into the cloud, into the sea meaning that they're identified as God's people. Today, we're baptized into Christ, meaning we're, identif- we're identified uh, with Christ. But in the Old Testament, here's baptized into Moses, which represented being God's people. The spiritual food and water means that God is the one who supplied everything that they needed. And note in verse 5 that we're told uh, that the spiritual rock they drank from was, was Jesus Christ. Sometimes we wonder when Jesus showed up, was that just in the New Testament? No, Jesus is in the Old Testament. He's the rock that supplied their needs in the Old Testament. But then as we keep going, at the end of verse 5, we're told God was not pleased with most of them. So here, all of Israel has experienced the graces of God, but then as we come to the end of verse 5, most of them God was not pleased with. So what we have is that there are many Israelites who are experiencing God's blessing. They were with others who went through the Red Sea, so they also experienced the grace of going through the Red Sea. So they're with others who are experiencing God's grace simply because they are in proximity to God's people. Does that make sense? They're in proximity of those who are receiving grace, so they're sharing in that grace. And this is what happens today. People think they're saved because they grew up gathering with the church. Maybe that's you. You grew up since you've been like three, two, one. Maybe like you're born in the church practically. You know, it seems like what happens to some people as they describe it. You just grew up like whenever the church doors were open or whenever the building doors were open, you were there, continue to gather with the church. They think that they're saved because they've been baptized. They think they've been saved because they take communion since they were six. They live socially acceptable lives. I mean, they're moral. And so the Christians around them say, well, you live a moral life. Obviously, you're a very good Christian. But nowhere in God's word are we told that living a moral life is what makes you a Christian. Nowhere are we told that simply because you're baptized or because you gather with the church, it means you're saved. Hopefully, those things are the, the outcomes of our salvation, but they do not necessarily make us saved, and they do not mean that we are running the race for the glory of God. Again, as we go through here, that may be your testimony, and you, you're baptized at six, you've been taking communion. If that's true, and it's truly because you have faith in God, that's an amazing testimony. I'm not trying to discourage that. I want us to know, are we running the race? Are we living as God has called us to? In 2013, there's a marathon in England called the Marathon of the North. You almost have to laugh as you hear this. It's 5,000 runners that took the wrong course. Disqualified all of them because they took the wrong course. One of them took the right course. Qualified. Received the prize. This is what Paul's afraid of. 
He's afraid that there are Corinthians, that there's people gathering within the church, and they're, they're running the wrong race. And so he doesn't want anyone to run the wrong race. He's describing what it is to live and how to, how to run the race for the glory of God. And I pray today that you know that you're running the race. I don't want, I don't want to get to heaven one day and stand there and go and hear the words disqualified. I don't want anyone that, that I shepherd, anyone within Timberline that, that are here with me and the elders that will one day come to the gates thinking they're qualified, but in reality they're disqualified because they've never truly put faith in God. I don't want us to think we're running the race if we're actually sitting on the couch. So please hear this message in love. As we go through, hear it in love. If you're a believer, I pray you're encouraged and exhorted to run the race even harder. Pray that you're encouraged. Pray that you're aware of sin and maybe sin to repent from, but you run even harder. I pray that if you're an unbeliever, whether you think you're a believer and you're not, or really you just know that you come in here and you know, I, I don't have faith in God, I'm just checking this thing out, that you would hear and receive the grace of Jesus today and that you would run the race. Because there's no greater joy than living for Jesus Christ. There's no greater joy than knowing that you will be with God forever and you've been cleansed from your sins. So now in verse 6, as we go on, Paul continues, he's going to keep referring to the Old Testament. He's going to explain why God was not pleased with most of them. He's going to say that many of the Israelites did what was evil. See that in verse 6, that we might not desire evil as they did. In verses 7 through 10, Paul is going to give four examples of the temptations that Israel experienced, which revealed the evil in many of the Israelites. So, here this. God's God used temptations, these trials, as a means to reveal who truly had faith in him and who did not. Temptations reveal the condition of our heart. Now let me point out the words, as some of them. That phrase, as some of them, appears four times in these verses 7 through 10. It contrasts the word all that, it, that was there five times in verses 1 through 5. If you look at it, it says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them. Do not indulge in sexual morality, as some of them. Verse 9, do not put Christ to the test, as some of them. Do not grumble, as some of them. So what we have is, all experience the grace of God, but remember, not all of them actually had faith in God. Some of them received grace because of mere proximity. And so now, these temptations are revealing who has faith in God and who does not have faith in God. And so we're going to walk through these four temptations. And I, I want you to think through them in your life. Am I falling into these temptations? Am I stumbling over these temptations? Number one, many of them committed idolatry. In verse 7, Paul says, don't be idolaters. <clears throat> idolaters. And he's referring mostly to Exodus 32. If you remember, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. What does Israel do? They throw, they, they say, we just threw the gold into the fire, out popped a golden calf, because that's how it happens. And they worshipped it. It's probably not how it really happened. Now, most of us don't have little golden trinkets on our bookshelves or whatever that we worship. Some people do. And it happens in many cultures. May, may represent you. Most of us don't actually have little golden idols. 
But here, here, here's a definition of idolatry. I forget who said it, but it's a really good definition. An idol is anything that has our love and loyalty ahead of God. And as a result, decreases our dependence on him, our desperation for him, and our devotion to him. I think it's a really good definition. Let me read it one more time. An idol is anything that has our love and loyalty ahead of God. And as a result, decreases our dependence on him, our desperation for him, and our devotion to him. So the question is, do do I have an idol? Do you have an idol? Is there any idols in your life? Your idol can be money. I know it gets thrown around a lot in church, but it's true. All you can think about is money. Your worth comes from your paycheck. Perhaps your idol is your job. All you can think about is your next promotion. Your worth comes from your job, your title, your position. It could also be that the reason you're always discontent, the reason you're always unhappy is because of your job. You're wanting your job to be your idol. And it's not giving you the satisfaction that you want. Perhaps your idol is your kids. Everything you do revolves around your kids. It could be your spouse. Everything you do is revolves around your spouse. And, and all you do is try to make them happy. And if they're not happy, then you're not happy because they're your idol and they determine everything that you do and how you feel. We could just make a long list. But the question is, is, is there anything you love more than God? Now, if you're a good Christian, most of us would, function, would theologically say, of course not. But functionally, is there? Like, as you live out your day, if you were to look, is there anything that you actually love more than God? Is there things that get in the way of sharing the gospel, of reading about God's word, of growing in his faith and knowledge, of serving others? Do you have an idol? The next temptation. Many of them committed sexual immorality. In Numbers 25.1, we read Israel's wandering in the wilderness. God has said, um, do not marry any of the women from other nations because if you do, they will lead you into worshiping idols. What does Israel do? They whore with the daughters of Moab. So what we're told is that they begin just marrying the women, having sexual and moral relationships with the people that God has told them not to. And the result is that God killed 23,000 of them. He said, no, do not think that you can be called my people and live however you want. So he killed 23,000. And today there are many professing Christians who choose to ignore what God's word says regarding sex. They think that somehow the bedroom is off limits to the Christian life. But there are no areas that are to be off limits to what it is to live a godly life. There's, There's not... There are little boxes that we have. I live a godly life here and here, but these ones I don't live a godly life in. All of our lives are to come under conformity of God's word. So I ask, are your sexual desires in line with God's word or against it? Or maybe I should say, not just your desires, are your sexual practices in line with God's word? Something to consider, something that we must understand. Number three, Many of them put Christ to the test. In Numbers 21.5, Israel complained about the hardship of being in the wilderness and the lack of food and water. And we're told that their complaining was a test of Christ. They were testing God when they were complaining. They complained about the manna that God was faithfully giving them every single day while they're in the wilderness. And their discontented hearts were an affront to God's faithfulness. The result, God sent snakes. And the snakes bit, and the snakes killed them. Again, temptation. 
was revealing the fact that many of these people have no faith in God. Let me ask you, do you test Christ? Do you act as though you know better than God? Do you reject his provision for your life? We test God when we say that we know better than he does. And we do this by being discontent with our jobs, our marriages, our financial situations. We say, I should have this. I I should have more money by now. I deserve this promotion. I'm not happy with where God has me right now. Now, we might not use the word where God has me, but that's what we mean. And we begin to be discontent in all the things that we have. And ultimately what we're doing is saying, God, you're not really that faithful. You should have given me a better spouse. Then I would have had a better marriage. Or I have to divorce this person because I was too young. I didn't realize what I was doing. But I got married with them. Or we look at our financial situations or our jobs or anything and we're discontent. So in essence, we're saying, God, you are not good. Because if you were good, you would have done it better, different. You've overlooked me. And we don't use those words because we're good Christians. We basically say all those things without using the word God. But the implication is that God is not good. The implication is we're questioning God's faithfulness. And to question God's faithfulness, to question God's goodness, is to test God. It is to say that, God, you are not good. Many of them grumbled. That's the last temptation. Now, here we don't really have any evidence to what, what Old Testament example Paul is referring to. Because if you know anything about like Israel and the wilderness, they grumbled, right? I mean, they grumbled over everything. They grumbled about God. They grumbled over Moses. They grumbled over um, food, over water, over dirt, over, I mean, everything they grumbled on. The result is that Paul says the destroyer, which... Angel of God, Jesus, Spirit of God, um, destroyed many. Again, there's horrible consequences for when we fall into these temptations. Do you know grumbling can disqualify you? Do you know that? Like, as I was reading this, I was like, wow, grumbling can disqualify you. Like, I... I think too often we treat grumbling like this gray area in the Christian life. We know it's not a good thing, but it's really not sin. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's practically how we think. We grumble about our jobs, our marriages, our leaders, our country. We grumble about things that happen in church. We grumble about decisions that are made that we think we should be included in. I mean, we can grumble about anything. And we grumble as, I just need to vent to someone. You ever say it like that? Or, I need you to pray about this with me. You know, so then we like grumble all about it as if it's a prayer request. It's not a prayer request. It's just sin. But we grumble, and we say, you know, I, I just need someone just to let all this out to. Well, do you? Do you need to do it in that way? Because if you do it in that way, you better be repenting right afterwards. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus makes it clear that every word we speak flows from our hearts. So if our mouths are filled with grumbling, it's a sign that our hearts are full of sin and unbelief. That was... That was new to me this week, thinking that, wow, grumbling disqualifies. We come to verse 12. Verse 12 says, therefore, so he's concluding this. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Say, do not think you're securing your faith simply because you're associated with a faith community. Do not think you're running the race when in reality you're watching the race. 
So I urge you. I urge you today. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Are you running the race for the glory of God? Or do the temptations in your life testify that you don't have faith in God? Just think about that. At this moment, you may be saying, is there hope? Like, this isn't really that, that <laughs> cheerful of a message. It's just kind of hard. I mean, we're always faced with temptations, right? I mean, always. You're, you're faced with temptations right now. Do I want to listen to this? Do I not want to listen to this? You know, do I want to adhere to God's word? Do I not want to adhere to God's word? You're going to be faced with temptation as you go out. Someone's going to cut you off on the way home. How do you respond to that? It's temptation. How do you respond? So do all these temptations in my, my life mean that I'm not saved? No. It don't mean that you're not saved. Simply the presence of temptations does not mean that you're saved. And I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying, and God's word is not saying, that Christians are to have perfect lives and we don't fall into temptation. That's not the point of this message. It is not to say that we don't ever fall into temptation. It is not to say that we are perfect. We are not like, if, I mean, you know this, the Christian life isn't this vertical line of godliness that we just grow perfectly straight up. It's often we take three steps forward, two steps back, and sometimes two steps forward, three steps back, right? It is this messed up, jagged line that's slowly making its way up. Often never as fast as we want, but it should be progressing up. We're going to have setbacks. We're still sinful. We still struggle with sin. We sometimes don't trust in God as much as we should. So don't, don't hear me that the presence of temptations in your life means that you're not a believer or that you should never, ever fall into temptation. I hope you don't. I hope we don't. But it's probably going to happen. So what does, what does this mean? So Paul, he gives this strong warning saying, just because you're, you're with the gathering, don't think that you're part of the gathering. Don't think that you're part of God's people just because you're in proximity to them. So now he comes to this great comfort. Because as many of the Corinthians are going, but man, we're going through temptations. And like we're faced with temptations all the time. What's the hope that we have, Paul? And so in verse 13, we have a stronger comfort that he gives. Let me just read it, and then we'll, we'll, take, we'll walk through it step by step. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So here it is. I think there are four points. Number one, you can run the race because God is not picking on you. I think that's a good theological term, picking on you. Um, so what do I mean by that? There's no temptation that you're going to face that's not common to man. This means not, God is not coming up with new trials for you that no one has ever experienced before. Now, this is important because if you're, if you're like me, if you're pretty much human, um, when we go through temptation and trials, we can easily think no one has ever gone through what I'm going through. And we say the words, you, you don't know. You don't understand you ever been there? You ever say that? Yeah, you, you've heard it. You've probably said it. I've said it before. In fact, I was actually convinced of it at one point in my life that God was bringing me through things that nobody else understood. I even tried to get people to agree with me on that, and they didn't. Uh, but this is important truth. Because 
when this happens, we can fall into this depressed state that man, God is just picking on me. It's, it's like he's giving me more than what other people can handle. He's giving me more than what anyone else has ever had. But the truth is, most likely in this room of you know 80 or 90 or 100 people, somebody has probably gone through what you're going through right now, and it's probably been worse for them. Immediately you're going, well, hey, that's not true, because you don't really, oh, it's probably true. Most likely someone in this room has gone through the same things you're going through. And, and if not, we add another 50 people into this room, and surely we've got your temptation included in that. Like, surely. So just take comfort. There's nothing that you are experienced that is not new under the sun. That's new under the sun. That's what Solomon says. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all taken place before. To take comfort in that. That's one of the reasons that we're, we're to share our hurts and our burdens with one another. Because not only can we pray for one another, but often we can connect with each other and people would say, well, I've been there. This is, this is how God led me out of that. These are the truths of Scripture that I clung to at this time. So God's not picking on you when you're going through temptation. Number two, you can run the race because God is faithful. I didn't get very creative there. It says in the text, God is faithful. So I, I thought that was just a good reminder. God is faithful. Every one of the sins above, idolatry, sexual morality, testing Christ and grumbling, all a result of thinking that God is not faithful, but God is faithful. Just as a parent often cares for his child, for the, cares uh, for the child in ways that the child does not understand, so our Heavenly Father takes care of us in ways we don't often understand. And if you're a parent, you know that. You know that. We have to fight the lies of Satan and fight the lies of sin with the truth of Scripture. We saw earlier, the Old Testament is given to us that we would know who God is and that we would avoid sin and live godly lives. And an undeniable truth of the Old Testament is that God is faithful. Undeniable truth of the Old Testament. God continues to preserve His people, to endure His people. He saved Israel. He provided for Israel. He protected Israel. And He often did these things when Israel was not even faithful to Him. And if you look at the prophets, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet, calling to Israel, repent, turn back to God. He loves you. Repent, repent, come back to your father. And what did Israel do? They killed them, and they killed them, and they killed them, and they rejected them, and they threw them off. And God just kept sending more and more prophets, saying, no, turn, turn from your sins. Repent, come back to me. God is faithful. So when you're in your temptation, you're beginning to wonder, I feel like God has left me. I think, he, I think I'm all alone. No, that's a lie from Satan. God is faithful. We fight the lies of our experiences with the truth of Scripture. Number three, you can run the race because God is your protector. Do you know God protects you? He never allows anything to come into your life that you cannot handle. That's what we have here. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Praise God. Do you believe that? We, we throw that verse out to others. Oh, don't worry. Be comforted. God's not going to give you anything more than you can handle. But when we receive that, it's like, oh, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Now, quick disclaimer. Everything that comes into your life is more than you can handle apart from God's grace. Everything in your life. So quick disclaimer. It is by trusting in God. It is by clinging to His grace that we are able to overcome all the temptations that come into our life. But God knows who we are. 
He knows the measure of faith that we have. And He does not bring anything into your life that is more than what you can handle by trusting in Him. Take comfort in that. Think about whatever temptation you're going into. And just know, God is with you, He's faithful, and He's not giving you anything more than you can handle. You can handle by the, His indwelling Spirit who is in you, and by His grace, all that is in your life. And why? Why can we do this? That's the next point. You can run the race because God is your provider. It says, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And maybe if we understood the word escape, we'd better appreciate this passage. The word escape does not mean that God is simply going to remove the trial. That's often what we think. Oh, God's going to give you a way of escape so you can avoid the trial. So you can be just pulled out and not experience it. But that's, that's not what the word means. The word escape means the way out or to bear up under. Paul is saying the way we escape our trials is by passing through them. The way out is not retreat, but conquest. What do I mean by that? The, the way Jesus conquered sin and death was not by avoiding the cross, was not by avoiding death, but by taking our sins, dying on the cross, paying the price for them, and then rising from the dead. He endured them and, the, and conquered them. So the way of escape is through endurance. The way of escape is God-giving grace that we will not fall into temptation, but that we can endure and stand strong in temptation. Perhaps you're struggling in a marriage and wondering, how much more can you really endure? The answer is not escape the marriage, but that God is faithful and that He will provide grace so you can endure and stand strong. Perhaps you're raising a difficult child and wondering, how will you love them? How will you continue to shepherd them? Well, God is faithful and He will continue to give grace. Perhaps you're struggling with an addiction and you're not sure, I don't think I can actually quit this addiction. But God is faithful. And He's going to give grace that you are able to overcome this addiction. Perhaps you're unhappy at your job. You feel underappreciated. You're discontent. The answer is not necessarily get another job. It may be, but that's not always what is true. Nowhere in God's Word does it say you will love your job. He never promises us the job of our dreams. But God is faithful and He will provide the grace that you can be content in your job and proclaim Christ where you're at. As a Christian, the presence of trials in your life is not for you to doubt your salvation, but as a means for you to grow in your faith and joy in God and run even harder for God's glory. This is why James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Because the trials... They test our faith, which produces steadfastness, which results in growing in godliness. And so, encountering temptations is like our faith going to the gym. It's like our faith is going to the gym, and it's being exercised. And if you know, going to the gym sometimes hurts. It doesn't always feel good, especially the next day. So I've been trying to get back into, like, the gym routine. Seems like I'll, I'll be good for, like, a month, and it's, like, two months. I'm, like, very sporadic. So, of course, now I'm on my month of I'm going to get back into it. Um, so we'll see what happens in July. But 
the other day, like, I, I came home, and it was like I woke up in the morning. I was like, oh, man, I'm sore. <laughs> you ever have that? Like, oh, like, you can't actually get out of bed. You can't actually, like, sit up, and just every muscle just kind of hurts and aches, and you're like, oh, my goodness. And they're like, there's this pain. It's a pain because your, your, your muscles were exercised. They did things that they should have been doing, um, but that they weren't doing, and you forced them to do, and now they're growing. And it's a good pain. And so Steph will often tell me, you take some ibuprofen, you'll feel better. I'm like, no! Don't do the workout if you can't handle the pain. <laughs> but it's like a good pain because you're like, oh, it means that I've actually used my muscle. You know what I mean? It's like this good pain. It's like, oh, I actually worked out. I did like what they needed. That's what it is for our faith. When we go through the temptations, God is, God is exercising our faith. He's helping grow. And there's times it hurts. It hurts, but that means we're growing in our faith. The, the presence of temptation in your life is not the absence of God, but it's God working in you that you would grow in your faith, that you would grow in sure assurance of your salvation, and that you'd run the race for the glory of God. I know I said, but God never promises us an easy life. He never promises us an easy marriage, a job that we will love. He never promises us that we'll have riches and treasure here on earth. But he does promise, I will satisfy you with my grace. I will endure you with my grace. You will be persevered with my grace. So no matter what trial you are in right now, it is not too much for God's grace. God's grace is stronger, it's more abundant, and it's greater than whatever trial you're going through. That's, that's the confidence, that's the comfort that Paul is giving the Corinthians. He's saying, beware, notice, look, examine yourself. Are you running the race? But then don't think the temptations that come into your life are necessarily bad. But you can endure them. You can overcome them through his grace as you grow in godliness and run the race. So I want to, want to urge you as believers... Run for the glory of God. Do not be deceived into lies that you can live however you want and think that you'll be welcome into God's heaven. Don't think that. There's nowhere in Scripture that we see anything about that. We often will sometimes say, well, what about the thief on the cross? And we try to find what we think is a... Is a, is a there's a hole in the argument that we're to live godly lives. But that's not a successful argument. Yes, all it is is by faith, through God's grace, that we are saved in Christ alone. That is it. And the thief on the cross, he had that. And if he had lived any longer, we would have saw his transformed life. But he didn't because he died. That's not an argument against living a godly life. He died and wasn't able to. But if he had lived, we would have saw the godly life. Let's run the race for the glory of God. If you're here and, and you're looking at your life and, and you're looking at the temptation and you're seeing that, wow, there are temptations in my life and that you need to confess and repent of those today. Do that. Do that today. Repent and say, God, I've not been running the race as I should be. I've not been running the race and trusting in your grace and trusting in your spirit who is in me. I haven't been doing that. And confess your sins. And say, God, help me now as, as I confess and I want to live by faith and, and trust in your grace. Now, perhaps you're a believer or 
Perhaps you are a believer and you realize you haven't been depending upon God's grace. You've been stumbling over temptation, so repent. But if you, you may be here today and you may be going, I'm not actually sure. Most of my life is characterized by falling into temptation. In fact, I'm living pretty much unrepentingly in temptation right now. If that's you and you're going, I, I may actually really not be a believer. Or maybe you're saying, I definitely know I'm not a believer. Confess your sins today. Repent. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Receive his, the gift of salvation, the free gift of Jesus Christ, that you'd be saved, forgiven, made new, and begin running the race today for his glory. Do not think that the word disqualified has to be the permanent stamp over your life. But by receiving God's grace, we are qualified because of what Christ has done. And now we run the race because of our salvation for his glory. And when you experience times of doubt, and you will, you're going to experience times of doubt. As you leave this room, there's going to be temptations that come into your room and and your life, and you may have been wondering right now, but you really don't understand what I'm going through. I'm really not sure if God is faithful. If he really knows what you're going through. This is where we look to the cross. Always look to the cross. Because it's at the cross that we see God sent his son to die on a cross that by grace we'd be saved. It's at the cross we see God's faithfulness, his goodness perfectly displayed so that we know we can have absolute confidence that he is faithful and that he will continue to provide grace for us every moment of our lives. When you doubt, look back to the cross. Come to scripture and see his grace displayed for you there. And trust in what God's word says. Trust in the reality of God's word. You can stand strong against temptation because of God's grace. You can run the race and overcome temptation because of God's grace that is with you. We're going to take communion today. Um, I want to pray, and I know the kids are ready to come in. I love that the kids are coming in now at the end of services and, and, and singing songs and praising um, God with us. And they're here, and, and they're going to be able to watch uh, communion But as we take communion, I want, for one, if you need to repent and confess, do that. Do that now during this time. Um, But this is truly a time of celebration because we're looking back at what Christ has done for us. That he has qualified us. That he has saved us. And his grace is abundant. And we're looking forward to the time that he's going to return. To bring to consummation our salvation. Meaning, that one day we will be absolutely perfect in him. And that one day, all temptation will be completely and absolutely removed, never again for us to experience. And we will be in the new heaven and the new earth with the presence of Christ. That's the joy that we have as we look forward to, um, as as we're taking communion today. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we, we thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you that, God, you give abundant grace that we as believers, as your children, are able to run the race for your glory, knowing that you are strengthening us, are helping us, are providing for us, are protecting us at every step of the way. And God, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We glorify you for that. I pray today, God, we confess our sins of, of temptation, of, of not trusting in you, of falling into temptation. 
and that we run for you. And I pray that if there is anyone in here who has not believed in you, that God, by your grace, they do. They trust in you today. They trust that you have paid the price for their sins and they can have new life by faith in you. Be with us, God, now as we take communion, we celebrate you. In your name, Jesus, amen. Um, We do open communion here. Uh, So that means that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we welcome you to partake. You do not necessarily have to be a member here at Timberline. Um, But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then we we encourage you to partake of it with us. Um, I'm going to go ahead and ask the elders and whoever is helping serve with us today to go ahead and come forward. If we need more, you guys can come on to the second row here if you guys want. Cool. One thing, I know I said a few moments ago, but um, we love the children in service with us. And Actually, in the summer, some of these kids will be much more in the service with us. We'll be making some announcements more about that in the next couple of weeks. But we want them to have the experience of what it is to worship with, with the whole faith family, of what it is to, to be with older and younger adults as we all glorify God together. And so it's exciting to have them in here with us. Um, whether they're believers or not, it's awesome to have them, that they can be exposed to this, that they can understand and see what it is that we do. And so um, with that...